Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, their e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved partner is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. And they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. They invite you to check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com. Thinking Practitioner listeners save 15% by entering thinking at checkout on booksofdiscovery.com. Thanks to Andrew Beal and to Books of Discovery for their ongoing support. And Whitney, how are you doing? Very well, sir. Good to talk to you again. We've been off for a few weeks as we dealt with various different things in different parts of the world here. Yeah. And um, so it's good to be back on stage with you again here. So uh, welcome and good to see you again. No, yeah. it's, it's good to be here with you and uh, you know, getting back in the groove here. What, do you, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're talking about the confusing and often uh, fascinating world of thoracic outlet syndrome, actually. So, oh, confusion, uh, fascination, yeah. and thoracic outlet. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So, And is there, um, a, a, sorry, is there a handout? Is Actually, there is. There is a handout. It's going to have some other great resources for you on this, um, and you will find that on our Thinking Practitioner website, as well as um, also on the uh, Advanced Trainings website as well. Yeah, I'll put the URL in the notices that we send out too, so we'll make sure you got that. Yes, perfectly. So uh, you've got some notes and some other resources there that we want to make sure you have uh, uh, access to for our discussion today. So... Um, Thoracic outlet syndrome. Anyway, we're going to take a take a jump dive into this and see what we can uh, explore about this. It is a term that lots of uh, manual therapists hear a good deal. And, uh, you know, it, it is interesting if you look at the, a lot of the literature that uh, is written about thoracic outlet syndrome, they'll frequently say things like it's either the one of the most underdiagnosed things that there is out there or it's something that doesn't even exist. You know, it really runs the gamut. Um which is interesting when you see that in a lot of the, the medical literature. And that, that just illustrates some of the um, confusion, I think, so around it, what this actually is. No, that's really interesting. So there's either it exists everywhere and we're misdiagnosing or it doesn't even exist at all. Yeah. Um, and that's that's part of the problem is because it is so ill-defined, it makes it hard to nail down when mm -hmm. is it really there and, and how do you really identify it. So mm -hmm. we're going to look at some of those uh, dilemmas today. One of the things that I found interesting about this, looking into some of the history of this term and the concepts around it, is having to do with anatomically where the term even comes from. So yeah. originally thoracic outlet syndrome was seen predominantly as a vascular problem. And so there was a lot of emphasis on looking at especially subclavian artery as it exits the thoracic rib cage and makes its way over the top and then starts coming down the, the arm. And this is the region 
known as the thoracic outlet. And so that's where the condition got its name. But um, the vascular component, we're going to talk about this a little bit more down the road here, but the vascular component we've now learned is really very small in comparison to the neurological components of this particular condition, which seem to be a lot more affected by places where neural structures are exiting the cervical region. And uh, some or, um, or, authors sorry, have even, or to say yeah. the vascular component small or it's less common. Yeah, less common. So, yes, small is probably not a good word there. So less less common. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, so, this, so um, you're saying that the, the vasculature is a problem in far fewer people than the other stuff turns out. Right, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I, I even seen a couple authors advocating the neurological components of this be more accurately referred to as, thir- as a cervical outlet syndrome instead of uh, thoracic because it really has to do with the um, nerve roots coming out of the cervical region. So... I don't think we'll see that anytime soon in terms of a change in terminology, but it is good uh, to understand a little bit more about some of the anatomical features there to see uh, no you know, where kidding. that's come no from. No kidding. That changes things yeah. if I plug that into my thinking cap from being like a yeah. way out of the thorax to being a cervical root possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this also helps illustrate some of the different variations and terminology problems associated with this, just because the thoracic outlet is kind of an ambiguous region. Um, I even saw somebody talking about this one time saying, well, you know, if if you are a vascular surgeon or a, somebody who's looking at the vascular system, the area at the top of the rib cage is the thoracic outlet. But if mm-hmm. you are, for example, a respiratory physician, somebody who's focusing on the airway coming mm-hmm. down in there, mm-hmm. that's the thoracic inlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, some of those other confusion uh, anatomical terms are, are a bit confusing for us in terms of defining that. So, um you know, we'll we'll try to do our best to adopt the most common uh, facets of terminology there. That's great. No, that's helpful. Yeah. So, uh, as we look at this, one of the things that um, strikes me as being important in terms of a clarification are the divisions of what this, uh, how the term is, is uh, or the condition, we'll call it, is, is sort of uh, divided. Uh, you will often see references to three different types of uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, mm. or sometimes it's divided into two, vascular versus neurological. Mm-hmm. And then the vascular may be divided into venous or arterial. So um, there's you know, varying different statistics about this, but the the neurological components of this condition tend to make up about 90% of the cases, whereas the vascular is much smaller, somewhere around 5% of those with more being associated with venous problems of, and even fewer with arterial problems, which I find really interesting since thoracic outlet was originally viewed as a vascular disorder. Right. Um, now we're really seeing so your, much more your neurological. So your shows you that maybe nine cases out of 10, there's a primarily neurological component. And I think, yeah. I think just from memory, I don't trust my memory as much as yours, but I'm, I'm remembering 80%, but still the vast majority are... Yeah, you know, it's a pretty wide agreement that that's neurological as opposed to like cutting off the blood flow in most cases. Yeah, and I think one of the, another important thing to consider is that it's quite likely in many situations that both of these things are going on. So it's yes. not really appropriate to divide them up and say it's All just right. neurological with no vascular component. Right. So that's one why the number thing. Maybe this is less dividing too, but even the neurological ones you could argue could be microvasculature issues where the nerve is possibly distressed because it's not getting the hydration and the blood flow it needs. Absolutely. So then is that neurological or is that vascular? You know, Mm. if you've got a neurological disorder caused by lack of blood flow, 
you know, ischemia to the nerve structure itself. Is that a vascular issue or is it a neurological issue or uh, is it both? So just know that there are those components and that we may be seeing any of them uh, all the time. And for us, you know, I just encourage people just treat them as if they're all involved. Sure. Uh, but know that we may see some different types of things occurring from different, um, you know, types of those, those different variations. And we'll talk about those in, in just an, another minute as well. In other words, maybe it doesn't affect treatment as much as it might. So that in some ways we can just treat them and see how that works out too. So yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, the other thing that I want to, to emphasize here, and this is interesting, if you look at the literature on thoracic outlet syndrome, it does not often go into as much detail on some of the variations of the neurological forms as it often does just make those distinctions about vascular, neurological, right. uh, or you know, arterial and venous and neurological. But we really have, we have several different variations on the neurological components too that are have some important anatomical distinctions. So tell me about that. Um, yeah, there's essentially four of these variations that we you know, usually ascribe to. Sometimes the first two are considered similar together, but the first of those variations has to do with a, a an anatomical anomaly called a cervical rib. Um, and a cervical, you know, it's really important to remember that there's all kinds of anatomical variations from person to person with lots of stuff that we don't see in the anatomy books that are still moderately common. And a cervical rib, um, I believe the last time I looked and saw statistics on this happens in roughly, um, I think it was one to 3% of the population or something like that. I, so I looked this um, up a couple not, of years ago, what I found said one in 200, so half a percent, but somewhere. One you know. in 200. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So a small number, but if you kind of think about that, you know, out of every hundred to 200 clients you see, mm -hmm. one of them might have a cervical rib. So, I mean, after a while, it's not, it's not as uncommon as you might think. But what is it? The question. Well, so, hey, wait a minute. Um, we Our last episode had like 2,000 downloads. So that means there's like 10 people listening to this podcast that have cervical ribs. You could be one of them. How about, there you go. Could be one of them. You know, um, I remember when I first learned about the presence of cervical ribs, I was thinking about the number of people that I had worked on previously that seemed to have these rock hard scaling muscles right in their anterior neck region. And I could not get them to relax no matter what I did. I was rubbing the crap out of them and uh, they just wouldn't relax. And I got thinking after a while, Hey, you know, I was probably rubbing on their cervical rib. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, back to what is it there? The cervical rib is a, uh, it's an anatomical anomaly that is an extension of the C7 transverse process, and it sort of curls around on the side of the neck and comes down and has a fibrous attachment, usually to the to the first rib. So it it makes an extra sort of curved rib around the top of there. And then when it is present, the uh, brachial plexus and the neurological structures are draped across the top of that extra bony structure there, and that they can kind of get bowstrung across the top of that cervical rib in this variation of thoracic outlet syndrome. And that's what usually um, sets off those symptoms for individuals. Can I make so, a little distinction there? I've been, I'm course. sorry to be like your editor today. <laughs> Jump in. Uh, I like just, it. Yeah. Uh, just because there is a higher incidence of brachial and cervical plexus symptoms in people with cervical ribs, but just because you have one doesn't mean you necessarily are going to have problems too. Very important distinction, yeah. And I would also comment, just because you have a cervical rib 
and you have neurological uh -huh. symptoms doesn't mean you have to have that rib taken out there you go. because that is a frequent treatment is, is surgical removal of the of the uh, of serv of the uh, excess cervical uh, surgical removal of the cervical rib yeah. but you've had it your whole life um, and you've been able to get along without having the surgery for a long time so maybe there's other strategies and ways to do uh, to do that so most yes, cervical good, ribs yeah most cervical ribs are asymptomatic too yeah yeah so just know it could be a factor that is a possibility and if it's there we'll try to work with it in a variety of different ways that we can so um so that is the first um variation of the neurological com um group mm. the second one being uh, compression of the brachial plexus or neurological structures between the anterior middle scalene muscles mm -hmm. and um, this was uh, i know described by a number of different people and it was listed i remember seeing it in in janet travell's uh, book many many years ago as in their latin term scalenus anticus syndrome or the anterior scalene syndrome so a compression of those neural structures between the anterior middle scalene muscles in the cervical region. Now, this would be the area that we refer to as the cervical outlet. So that would make sense for those two variations to be the um, neurological cervical outlet variations. But again, we probably won't hear that term uh, mentioned that way for a while. So, mm -hmm. uh, and as you course a little bit farther down the pathway of those major nerve trunks of the brachial plexus, the third variation is the costoclavicular, what's called costoclavicular syndrome in many instances. This is compression of those structures between the clavicle and the first rib. So that is right near the true thoracic outlet, but it actually isn't the nerves coming out of the thoracic outlet. It's just nearby there. So compression of those between clavicle and first rib wait a minute it's not the neurovascular bundle you're saying getting compressed no or... it is the neurovascular bundle it's just it's not coming out of the thoracic rib cage it's just keep right it's already that that bundle is already yeah. out of the quote in inlet or outlet yeah it's already yeah. out of the periphery of the body a little bit far enough as the clavicle yeah. and that's where you might get caught up yeah exactly okay. and then um and then our fourth of those neurological variations often referred to as pectoralis minor syndrome. This, this is compression of that group of structures underneath the pectoralis minor muscle against the upper rib cage. And this is frequently referred to as pectoralis minor syndrome. So those are the four well, neurological variations. And then we have the vascular uh, variations as well. Yeah. Now, um, just a little footnote on the vascular stuff. A lot of PTs are taught well, there's a pretty good body of evidence that physical interventions can help the neurogenic kind, either exercise or stretching or manual therapy. There's, there's a bunch of massage therapy research into this even. But a lot of PTs are taught because there isn't much evidence of success around the vascular, truly vascular ones, that there are a lot of PTs are thought refer to surgery if it's vascular. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if I'd be that fatalistic about it, but we, yeah. we can do a whole lot around all four of those neurogenic variations you described, Whitney? Yeah, I, I think so. I think there's a lot of possibilities there. And the more you understand those different possibilities, it's, and, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we look at you know how to evaluate some of these things, but it's not always easy to figure out which one of those is really the primary problem, or if there is just one, might there be more than one, which is frequently the case. Uh, what you, um, I know you and I are kind of layering in our different ideas here. What do you think about me giving a movement example for each one of those? Is that too early in our discussion? No, let's do let's do that. Since we that'll be fresh in our mind, we just talked about yeah. those variations. So, so okay, that. so like as a little review, the cervical rib, and I think you have that noted there, Whitney, is the true neurogenic uh, yeah. thoracic mm -hmm. outlet. Another way to describe it. 
the for a cervical rib, uh, boy, I actually don't have a really good test for that. But brachial plexus might be side bending, uh, side uh, flexion of the neck, perhaps. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Whitney? Would that be a movement yeah. that would light that one up? That would be most likely. Now, again, that's going to do that more if your arm is out to the side where the rest of the the major part of the neural structures down the upper extremity are already pulled taut from their lower end. And then you pull them taut from the upper end across there. Thank you. Whitney maybe could see me do that on our camera, but that that is a part of that one. Let's say stretch your arm out and tilt your head away from that. If that makes your hand go numb or gets you get some of those tingling symptoms and stuff, maybe it's neurogenic, uh, maybe cervical rib, cervical nerve root. You know, again, these are not diagnostics. I should just put in that huge disclaimer too. These are like working hypotheses for where you might start your work. These are Mm -hmm. good guesses for body workers kind of things. Yeah. For the second type, anterior scalene syndrome, that one's probably going to light up uh, the most with head rotation, head neck rotation looking uh, away because of the scissoring effect of the anterior medial scalenes where they just kind of little triangle their closes around those nerves when you turn your head. And again, it's going to be much more sensitized if you stretch your arm out on the side that you're turning away from. Would you agree? And I would. And I want to just point out here too, the importance and what you're, what you're describing and illustrating there is a really important, valuable lesson for people about understanding what, what the term is often referred to as neurodynamics, uh-huh. which is the sort of uh, biomechanics of the nerves in different positions of the body or the extremities or whatever. And you can take a standard movement procedure that should uh, stress a certain area, like you were talking about for the anterior scaly muscles, turning your head slightly and possibly even a little bit of lateral flexion. Uh-huh. If your arm is in neutral, you may not feel anything. Mm. But if your arm is pulled out to the side, as we were talking about, now you're stretching the whole neural structures in there, and that makes that particular evaluation process more sensitive. And that's actually a really important clinical tool because you can use that to determine sometimes a level of severity. Like you start in a really neutral position that wouldn't really flare something up, and then you have them bring that arm out to the side and pull it a little bit more and if that really lights the symptoms up, you know, okay, this one's pretty sensitive here uh, to those just a little bit of extra movements. That's good. No, thank you. And I'm suddenly very aware that I'm kind of mucking about in your domain of expertise here and that there's so, so many very specific orthopedic tests that are done in precise ways to try to ensure their sensitivity or at least up their sensitivity and specificity. I'm talking about really rough, quick movement guesses that you might do as a body worker. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those, you know, to be quite honest, I think those are often more valuable than some of the um, orthopedic tests that have been you know, written about and published in all the books a lot of times because everybody is an individual. And when we can tweak those little movement patterns a little bit and see what's, you know, what is it for you that really, what's the movement for you? Because the other thing, remember, everybody's structure of their whole skeletal and musculoskeletal system can vary quite a bit in terms of where the, you know, is that a narrow pathway? Is that a a wide open pathway in that particular area? Like maybe Mm. they got a really narrow area between the scalene muscles, but a really wide space between the clavicle and first rib and somebody else has got the reverse. And so just the application of those tests uh, in uh, a vacuum without considering all those other things, oftentimes I think where people get led astray and, and putting way too much emphasis on some of them. That's great. So we had we had a side bending the head for for a neurogenic. We had turning, laterally flexing, uh, stretching the arm for anterior scaling. For the costal clavicular, your third type, the classic test there is like weight carrying, like carrying a heavy suitcase. 
if you can imagine that, that would pull the clavicle down onto the first rib there and might irritate the neurovascular bundle there. Or mm-hmm. it's, it's a forced inhalation, a really big inhalation could billow the rib out from underneath the space there, the neurovascular space, and compress it that way. Yeah. There's a lot of overlap here, you know, because of that, you know, scalenes are also activated in forced inhalation. So there's, you know, these mm-hmm. aren't precise anatomical diagnostics as much as, again, a way to get a working hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. And then... And lastly... Yeah, lastly, for pec minor, pectoralis minor involvement, uh, there could be a number of things there. And I, when in our longer thoracic outlet class, we teach you does anything in that region, especially anything that attaches to the coracoid process there, you know, with uh, pec minor being a prime suspect, but there's also coracobrachialis, there's also short head of the biceps. Anything in there could be part of what is essentially crowding or uh, binding to that neurovascular bundle as it kind of loops around the pulley of the coracoid process. So the coracoid yeah. process is that little beak-like bony projection that comes forward from the scapula to the front of your body. Pec minor attaches there. So anything that that uh, actually activates pec minor, if that reproduces the symptoms, it's a good clue that you're you got a, a zone of sensitivity. Yeah. And an interesting little one about that particular one with the pectoralis minor and some other <clears throat> neurological involvements that, that shows the importance of understanding some things about neurodynamics is if you can envision, you know, there's some really good illustrations. Uh, and again, the, I remember one in particular that really just um, made such an impression on me when I first saw this was also in Janet Travell's Myofascial Pain and Dysfunction book, uh, an image, an anatomical image of the arm held in abduction. And you see raise how your, those Raise your hand go, if you know what arm yeah. abduction is. Yeah, so arm, arm all the way, shoulder all the way out to the side as if you're like putting your hand up on top of your head. Yeah. And that brachial plexus goes down, loops under the pectoralis minor, and then has to come back up almost at a 180 degree turn that's right. to come back up in there. And that's often when you have a pectoralis minor syndrome, lifting that arm up over your head yeah. is the kind of thing that will exacerbate those symptoms. Now, the interesting thing about this from a neurodynamic, you know, perspective, when we're trying to discriminate between different types of symptoms, that very same maneuver is often used to evaluate the likelihood of cervical nerve root involvement. Because if you have symptoms down your upper extremity that are neurological in nature, and you do that movement, and those symptoms get better, meaning they dissipate, that's often indicative of some type of, of nerve root involvement or something. Because if you don't have problems in the thoracic outlet region under the pec minor, you are bringing that whole upper extremity neural structure closer to the neck. So you're really slackening the whole thing. And so that's oftentimes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Like it makes it worse in one situation and makes it better in another situation. So, um, Mm -hmm. helpful to to make some of those distinctions. No, that is super important. And then the other thing to keep in mind for any of these is that if you can reproduce the symptoms with palpation, with pressure, gentle pressure with your hands, that's a really clear sign you're onto something. Mm-hmm. So if you can gently press around the coracoid process and someone feels tingling on their arm, bingo, you got a place where that uh, neurovascular, the nerves are sensitized. And yeah. Similar around the scalene zone too. And that'll be a really important one when we talk a little bit about treatment methods too, because it is really important when treating neurological problems to not do things that uh-huh. make it worse. Uh-huh. So 
And we got to remember, there's a couple places here in this thoracic aleut region, especially the area between the scalene muscles, um, where those nerves are really superficial and they're close to the surface. Yes. So it can be easy to irritate them with your your palpatory explorations or your treatment as well. Well, and then there's the question of like, isn't everybody sensitive? Like in your scalenes, if you go digging around in there, you're going to get some numbness on all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. It's, uh, I guess it's a question. I'm, I don't know. You got an answer for that one, Whitney, I'll, before I try mine? No, no. I would say, yeah, go ahead and tell me what you're going <laughs> to. I was going to say, uh, keep that in mind that just because yeah. you can provoke symptoms doesn't mean there's a pathology also. Yeah. But yeah. for sure it's the level of sensitivity. And is it just like what they always feel? That's a pretty good clue. You're onto something relevant. Yeah. And how much, yeah. how much pressure, all that kind of stuff. If it's just really a little bit of touch, a little bit of pressure. Yep. That's pretty sensitive. Yeah. Um, I saw just something came to mind here. When I was a kid, um, I don't know, probably eight or nine years old or something like that. Um, I used to wrestle with my dad all the time. And I remember, um, I had seen some kind of like, you know, wrestling show or something Uh like that, where some guy grabbed this other guy right over the top of their clavicle and just like really held onto it really firmly. And, and, uh, you know, the guy passed out or something like that. And so I just thought Uh I was going to imitate this little thing, you know, grabbed my dad's, uh, shoulder neck and just dug my fingers in. And, you know, he was laughing because we were playing a lot, but then he's, I made his arm go numb for like two weeks. And yeah. I learned, you know, figured out later yeah. on, well, I probably did some intermittent uh, damage to that brachial plexus. bruised his brachial plexus there. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so, right. um, that's not a treatment I advocate any longer. Okay. Great. Yeah. Good deal. Well, and then there's like uh, the double crush idea. I mean, we're going to talk about, about that. Well, there's yeah, double we're going to talk about controversies, but uh, yeah. the idea that in a number of people, you have more than one spot, more than one place mm-hmm. where that nerve track is unhappy. And uh, according to go- Joe Gibson, who knows a whole lot about this stuff, she says that somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of scaling entrapments also have pectoralis minor compression so that you got to mm-hmm. end up with it in multiple spots along the pathway. Yeah. And this is another good reason to sort of, I mean, it it may sound a little glib, perhaps, but, you know, I always tell everybody, treat this person as if they all exist, because um, most of the time there is a likelihood for multiple locations of neural entrapment or something like that, and treat them as if all of those things are there and address all of them, because they could all be a potential factor. And there's there aren't really definitive methods to exclusively say this one is here, but this one's not, you know? So uh, there's not that degree of exclusivity that we have for our evaluation procedures. Mm -hmm. It is helpful to be able to identify some things differently if we can just know we can't be, it's not rocket science. Yeah. Well, so we've been talking about a whole bunch. Is it time to ask the question, is it even a thing? Well, let's do. Yeah. So we talked about the, what we think it is from those people that think there's a lot more of it than there's talked about that. Well, what about uh, it not being a thing? Oh, I, I assume it's a thing. I, yeah. I was, that was my softball to you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think well, it's a thing. <laughs> here's why I think that comes about in terms of the literature saying like, they don't even think it's a thing. It's because it's so poorly defined uh-huh. um, and people have such a difficult time identifying what's going on with them. And and this is where I'm going to make a real, uh, I'll just uh, put a caveat out here, blatantly biased statement that I think a lot of 
the practitioners who treat musculoskeletal disorders are not thorough in their musculoskeletal uh-huh. evaluation process, and that's why they don't find it. Um, so that's why I think there's some um, dilemma about how accurate that is. And that doesn't mean necessarily, you know, um, not just their physical examination process. A lot of it is even delving into a history deep enough to really identify, you know, movements that irritate, movements that aggravate, movements that relieve, all those kinds of things that are yes. important key factors to help us identify things that I think so many of our practitioners are so pinched for time with each mm-hmm. patient, they don't go into the level of detail to pull that kind of stuff out. So you're going to miss some of those. You're going to miss a lot pinched, of them, actually. Pinched for time. I like that. Or yeah. uh, or not unclear about their domain or their focus. Do I need to give this mm-hmm. client a full body session? Are they wanting to relax? Or am I giving extra attention to this numbness and tingling in their hand they just told me about? Yeah. Those kind of questions. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a bigger uh, question there too about what makes something a thing mm-hmm. that I'm going to try yeah. to add of. But that's, you know, you, in terms of it being a precise diagnosis, no, I can totally go there on questioning that. Is mm-hmm. it a, a therapeutic narrative that can give some strategic, usefully strategic pointers? Yeah. In that case, it's a thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, another important thing that I want to just uh, touch on here anatomically that, um, you know, often doesn't get uh, addressed as much, but is a, is a valuable one for people. Like when people come in and say, I've got, you know, pins and needles are tingling in my hand. Tell me. Lots of individuals immediately, their mind just jumps to, okay, this is a carpal tunnel issue or something yeah. like that, which, because it's the popular one that everybody, you know, hears lots about. But uh, an important distinction with um, thoracic outlet syndrome is the vast majority, and not all of them, certainly, but the vast majority of those cases do tend to involve the ulnar nerve distribution much more so than the other major nerves down the upper extremity, either median or radial nerve uh, distributions. And that's because the nerve roots that come off the lower portion of the brain. Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't tell us. Uh, yeah. Let's make sure that I know what that means. Like, all right. So the, oh, then you're talking about numbness that would be in my little and ring finger, say, as opposed to thumb and pointer finger. Yes. Thank you for the clarification there. Yes. So um, outside edge of your hand, last two fingers, pinky finger and ring finger is the sensory distribution of the ulnar nerve. Yeah. And so across the rest of the palm, the other two fingers and the thumb on the palm side are predominantly the median nerve distribution. And then it wraps a little bit around the thumb and the radial nerve is on the back side of the hand. And just to divulge Um, further, I diverge further from what you're saying. The median nerve is responsible for a lot of what people call carpal tunnel syndromes, or at least it's thought to be. And so those tend to be focused more or less thumb and forefinger. But now you're saying somebody that comes into my practice tingling in my hand. And when I ask or investigate, it's little finger and ring finger. Aha. Yeah. Nerve. Right. Not carpal tunnel syndrome. So, um, and it could be, there's a couple, there's a, a number of different potential locations of ulnar nerve entrapment throughout the upper extremity, which is a great topic for us to tackle one day uh, that we'll probably get back to. But there does tend to be with thoracic, the neurological thoracic outlet variations tend to have a lot more symptoms in ulnar nerve distribution than in the other two. And that mainly has to do with the architecture of the brachial plexus. Okay, because like so, the, the the median nerve also arises from those same roots, right? It does. Uh, more fibers to the ulnar nerve from the lower portions of the um, 
brachial plexus, the, the lower or the lower nerve roots. And so that's why it's if it's ulnar nerve, it's more likely to be thoracic outlet because it's typically those lower segments that are involved more. Yes, because so those lower segments, if you think about it, the lower the segments that are coming off the last cervical vertebra are the ones that are going to be most inferior in the group or the bundle of nerves that make up that plexus. And so they're going to be the ones that are going to be dragged across that cervical rib the most. They're also going to be the ones dragged across the upper rib the most, pinched between the clavicle and first rib. And they tend to lie against the upper rib cage with more pressure than the rest of the brachial plexus. So it does tend to get those variations of the lower brachial plexus more involved. Fascinating. That's really cool. So they're starting lower. They might have to do a sharper bend to get around those things in the thoracic outlet. Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. if I just put my arm out to the side with my thumb up, yeah, like a dermal tumble position. I don't know if there's a factor or not, but then I raise my hand over my head. It's like on a track, uh, running around the track, the outer lane has to go further. I don't know if that's why those axons get irritated more perhaps, but they're yeah. even in the, even in the axilla, even in the pec minor, there's theoretically a slightly longer pathway they have to take. Right. And then if you think about that position where you're frequently reaching up like you just did, and people can't see on your camera, but you were reaching up towards your head as if you were scratching your head, your elbow is flexed at that ah. point. And there's a lot of tension on the ulnar nerve as it goes through the cubital tunnel and the cubital tunnel shrinks and gets smaller in elbow flexion as well. So all of the, this is back to your double crush point. You've got multiple locations along there where you might be f potentially irritating that uh, ulnar nerve more more significantly. That's so cool. So yeah, so that's why it's important for us to to really zero in. I think on a lot of those symptoms from what our our clients are are telling us and experiencing because it really helps us narrow down where we want to try to focus. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got. Uh, I mean, I got a couple miscellaneous trivia points. That let's hit them. Uh, yeah, and then maybe we'll do a the stretch or two. I'm going to for sure put some hands-on techniques in the handout. There'll be an outline of what Whitney and I Whitney and I talked about. And I realized what the URL will be, so I'll go ahead and announce it here and at the end too. The URL is going to be a-t.tv slash ttp-tos. You got that right? <laughs> a-t.tv slash ttp Dash TOS. It's going to be the notes. Don't worry about it. It's like Morse code. The, uh, it is. The dot. <laughs> yeah, forget it. Go to the show notes. You'll get it there. Uh, but anyway, the trivia points. 71% uh, of cases tend to be female of thoracic outlet. Average number of visits. I'm sorry. Average number of physicians visited for what turns out to be a thoracic outlet problem is six. People seek a hey. lot of treatment before they get it figured out. Go ahead, Benny. Can I back up a, a moment here? Do you have any um, input or rationale ideas on why the, the very skewed percentage toward female uh, instances with this? It's such a good question, and it's so true for so many conditions, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't. I don't. Like, you mm -hmm. know, in, the, in, um, um, in some conditions, there's clear anatomical differences between the gender yeah. and sexes, but I don't know the rationale for this in females, why it's okay. for females. No, yeah. Uh, so yeah, a lot of visits to doctors before it gets diagnosed. Average length of time before it gets diagnosed: five years. So that's the wow. Yeah, that's the idea that a lot of people can't get it figured out, which leads people to even wonder: is it a useful medical diagnosis? Because yeah. there's a lot of those people end up with 
symptoms in their head, like headaches or chest pains or chest tightness, shoulder issues. And there's stories of lots of unsuccessful surgeries that eventually, uh, you know, the, the issue got resolved when they got their thoracic outlet symptoms addressed. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it can be a challenging tr- uh, problem for someone to have and just a lot of sim- uh, understanding and sympathy, as well as a big open mind around that too, because it's really hard sometimes to pin it down as this is that. It's really a case of what, what activities on the patient's part or client's part, what treatments we do to seem to help. Yeah. There's um, in most cases, sorry, go ahead, Wendy. Uh, now go ahead and finish that point because I want to come back to something um, because I was just realizing in our discussion, we have emphasized and talked a lot about symptoms from the neurological variants. And I want to make mm. sure we just at least touch base on a few of the things to watch for in those other in vascular. Um, vascular ones as well. So go ahead and well, um, no, finish up we'll what we're talking After here. you, sir, that's uh, okay. given that's such a good lead in. Let's hear what that would be. So yeah, just keep in mind with the vascular variants that we're likely to see a lot of those types of things that that are relatively common with other vascular problems. For example, in a, an arterial involved one, you might see ischemia because there's lack of, of blood flow down the upper extremity. So there's going to be possibly some ischemia associated with there. There may be... Um, How would I see that as a practitioner? How would I know? So, you know, a person's limb may be looking at the comparison of their hands, one hand to each other, yeah, one color. looks a lot wider, oh, more color. pale than yeah, the other. Yeah, so color, mm-hmm. color evaluation. And then that also goes over to the venous side as well, because if there is a venous blockage in there. That means there's a blockage of return. We may see more um, edema or possibly, you know, a little bit um, darker coloration to their um, limbs because of the uh, lack of venous uh, return there. So you're getting a, an accumulation of blockage of, of uh, venous flow on the upper extremity. So mm-hmm. those could be uh, certain indicators of, of vascular problems in there. You know, pain that's, there's a uh, pain that may result just simply from um, you know, a lack of uh, appropriate vascular supply to muscles uh, can, can be a, a factor in there. Um, other types of vasomotor um, indications, you know, with uh, va- sometimes, um, you know, things having to do with the uh, little hairs on your skin yeah. uh, that are not um, acting the same on side to side. Those are kinds of little things that could be factors. So these are some of the other things to... Hairs don't act the same side to side. I hate that. I know. Yeah. It's like behave. Yeah. Get them to behave correctly. So, so uh, you're yeah. like you get goosebumps on one side, but not the other. That's really... Yeah. 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 Pseudomotor responses there. And so, uh, um, and, you know, f- f- uh, clients expressing things like a sensation of, of fullness or thickness or some kind of mm-hmm. sort of ambiguous descriptions of they just don't feel the same on each side that might be indicative of, of improper uh, vascular movements in there. So those are some other things. I just want to make sure we don't forget to look uh, at when we're talking about those different variations. Sausage fingers. I got my sausage. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. That yeah. Could be some other stuff too, but that's, that's the kind of, that can be a vascular thing for sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's helpful. And then, so, um, <laughs> yeah, I got a bunch of trivia there, but I don't really, it's trivial, that stuff. Uh, should we do a movement or two for ourselves? Let's do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's talk about movements and, and, uh, what do we do about this kind of stuff? It so some movement things and some right. treatment. So things, what do we, yeah. The treatment stuff I'm going to, not going to try to explain over the podcast. I'm just going to put a picture yeah. in the handout and refer yeah. to some of Whitney's great stuff and our courses as well. But, uh, I'll put some 
specific techniques for the scalings in the handout. But for something you can do for yourself or you can help your clients with or side stretches, just take a hold of the bottom of your chair on one side. Let's say it's the affected side. Hold on to the underside of the chair. Yeah. And then tilt your head away from that side. So you're going to laterally flex the neck away from that side. Move your head backwards. So like reach for the back of the room with the back of your head. And then look up. So if that that's going to be stretching a lot of stuff, including your scalenes, excluding the scalenes right around the zone where that thoracic outlet goes through. So be nice to yourself. It's making my voice a little bit hoarse. Yeah. Right yeah. Be nice to yourself and breathe and relax. And then it's about yeah. to come out of that too. Do you have an uh, an advocation for length of time on holding these versus doing shorter duration stretches? And you know, we got into discussion yeah. on another uh, thing about this recently. What's your what's your sort of go to on stretching durations for those kind of things? Oh boy, I get to ask that all the time, and it's that is the art. It's like uh, there probably is a in the, the classical parameter that's defined as what is it three sets three sets of ten or whatever you know they, they pick some parameter yeah. they guess is going to probably be good for the research do the research mm -hmm. and then everyone adopts that as the treatment standard the, yeah. the real answer is uh you want to desensitize things mm -hmm. i'm doing just enough that the brain it gets the brain's attention but not so much that it upsets my brain yeah. So it might be just a couple seconds or even more than duration, perhaps at that level is, is how intensely I do it. So let's go ahead mm -hmm. and do the other side. So you can hold on to your chair, tilt your head now to the other side, holding on with the other hand, tilting away to the other side, move your head backwards, look up, breathe, and you get to come out of it when you've had enough, but you also get to decide how much intensity. So you're getting just enough intensity to get your brain's attention, but not so much to make your brain upset. And then about you come out of it and you're going to repeat that. Yeah. I think it's valuable to repeat. And I think it's valuable to repeat it a couple times a day. Yeah. But it, you know, if you want to, it's more important to teach people how not to overdo it. Cause mm -hmm. you can, if you have a, you know, it's like say thoracic outlet symptoms or that tingling or numbness down that side of your hand, you could definitely do that in a way that kind of feels good. And you think, Oh, the more I stretch it, the better. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's more like yeah. the more your brain gets used to it, the more your brain relaxes around it, or perhaps the more hydration you stimulate in there. Who knows? Then the better. So it's like a gentle yeah. tickling more than a, a an aggressive stretching of that symptom. Yeah. So, sort of uh, physiologically, we want to keep in mind when you're doing these kinds of things that um, you're trying to encourage some increased stretch tolerance to those contractile elements in there, but you're not trying to stretch the nerves. And that's sort of the, the important thing. The nerves don't really like to be stretched. And so we're trying to get mobility in those tissues that need some enhanced mobility and freedom of movement, but not do those things that increase neural irritability. Because another important factor to remember with nerve injuries is they are notoriously slow to heal. So mm -hmm. if you've had this for a long time, it might take quite a while to get some restoration of good movement and, and decrease of symptoms in there. Oh, those are important points. And I can't help but yeah. quibble a little bit. So, but you tell me, you said nerves don't like to be stretched. That's such an important point to tell our students who are used to stretching things like a big joint stretch or something. But I would wonder if you would agree with me if I refine it to say that nerves like to be stretched within a certain amount of range, a normal range. Like the sciatic nerve turns out to lengthen five inches just along its normal case of range. It actually likes yeah. that. But if it's asked to be stretched more than it's used to, yeah, that makes it pretty unhappy. 
Yeah, I'd say that's an important clarification. I'd also make the clarification, if we can, between stretching them and mobilizing them in uh -huh. some instances, too. You know, it's really important to make sure nerves are mobile, and sometimes that might involve applying tensile loads to them to make sure that they are fully mobile. But yes, they, as long as, and when we talk about stretch, stretching within their safe parameters, that's a good distinction. So thanks for that. My best, uh, my best metaphor for myself, and please forgive me for this, is, is that when I was a kid, our backyard, we would irrigate it with flood water and all the earthworms would come crawling up out of their holes. All right. Uh -huh. So there's a bunch of earthworms kind of gasping for breath, lying half out of their holes. If, and we would go gather them up because they were so cool. I'm talking like five years old. Mm -hmm. If you pull the earthworm too quickly, they're unhappy. Bad things yeah. happen. But if you go really slow with those worms, you actually have a pet. You have a new friend. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's like that with nerves. Nerves like to be coaxed, to glide, yeah. to glide and move. If you're just tugging on them, uh-uh, don't do that. Yes. Yeah, good distinction there. Yep. All right. So pec so, minor, should we talk about that? Yeah, stuff for sure. Or if there's some pec minor symptoms, like raising the hand over the head, the abduction evokes the symptoms. There's some interesting research, Whitney. And in fact, the reference I had in my handwritten notes there is Low et al. 2011. That he and some his group, bozo there. <laughs> Low et al. in 2011 apparently did some work around the efficacy of different yeah. physical treatments, and they found that the door frame stretch, like putting your hands on a door frame and leaning into it, yeah, made the biggest mm -hmm. change in length of the pectoralis minor out of all yeah. the different physical therapy treatments they were studying. But a lot of people find that's almost too much, and that that you can get a backlash by overstretching it that way too. So some PTs are teaching more of a corner stretch, where you walk into the corner, put your hands on the two opposing walls at about shoulder distance, and gently lean into the corner as a very gentle kind of pec minor stretch. Yeah, and I would also call attention to the fact that many of these stretch positions and movements that we're advocating are very similar to many of the positions that are used in a lot of our evaluation procedures. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to move that point farther down the road of what you can do in the direction of what is it that causes some degree of irritability. So especially with neural problems, you you know, a lot of times with a, with a what we call a muscular stretch, you can tell somebody, oh, go ahead and stretch and stretch into this. Like you can say, oh yeah, just breathe when you feel that discomfort, go ahead and breathe into the discomfort of the stretch. And this is the point at which that nerve may not be so happy about pushing that degree of the envelope somewhat, but we are going in that direction to move it more, move it more, move it more, gradually increase that that uh, capability for it to move into those directions. Capability for it to move, and then also the capability of the brain to tolerate that or even enjoy it. Yes. Like uh, David Butler's thing, like tell the joke there, get them to the position and tell them a joke. Just recontextualize mm -hmm. their their neurological experience. Uh huh. I like that. Yeah. Uh, well, go ahead. I'm terrible at remembering jokes, so I'm probably not going to be, you know, my clients are probably like, you already told me that joke. That was a foot joke. You know, uh, all right. Yes. You're like, uh, trying to work on my brachial plexus. You yeah. need your brachial plexus specific jokes, pec minor jokes, something like that. Yeah. Right. So we got the leaning into the corner. Now, here's an interesting point. You said it can be like the hands on uh, assessments. On the table, a, a fairly thick roll towel or a small round bolster or something under somebody's spine. So your, soup, your client's supine, they're face up on the table. There's a bolster or rolled up towel under their spine. That allows the shoulders to fall back onto the table. Mm -hmm. Picture that. That's a great 
uh, position to essentially load the pectoralis minors. And again, if it provokes symptoms, go easy around it. But if it just starts to light them up a little bit, have someone breathe and relax a little bit, again, just to start to mobilize and uh, reset the reactions to those kind of sensations. Yeah, and I would also call attention to this. What you're describing there is a really good one because um, I know I've had an, a, a number of people who have these types of symptoms as an upper um, upper extremity shoulder slash cervical region brachial plexus problem who say once you put them over in a position supine on a flat massage table like that, start getting symptoms down their yeah, arm. Okay. And all it takes is the little rolled towel and just you know moving it just a little bit to try to find what is the position that's going to slacken that brachial plexus a little bit. So that's that's a nice little trick that can help decrease those symptoms for all kinds of things in different positions. So yes, important. You're talking about actually relieving the symptom or, or helping someone be more comfortable on the table. That's a important yeah. skill too. I was talking about provoking the symptom very gently with a towel draping around the mm-hmm. towel. But again, you don't want to leave someone there too much, just like you don't want to be doing that uh, leaning into the corner stretch too long too. If you if I forgot to tell you to stop, stop that and come back to your podcast. Right, yeah. Okay, so then uh, one important distinction too along these lines is uh, it was Rosa, Rosa et al. in 2017. They did they studied this pec minor stretch thing really carefully and said after an intensive regimen of six weeks of stretching, there was actually no change in its length. Mm-hmm. No change in its length. So probably the effects we're getting, this fits with a lot of things we're learning about, uh, well, stretching and biomechanics in general is that you know the effects might not come from say f- physical or measurable changes in say the length of the structures involved but they do have an effect on pain they do have an effect on pain and maybe it is the tolerance of the stretch maybe it's getting used to those movements maybe it's reminding your brain that those are okay maybe it's hydration descending modulation there's lots of ways we're explaining the effects but uh really invite you to tease out that point of view in your mind that says i got to physically stretch this like a bunch of taffy and hold it until it's going to stay there. Yeah. That's probably um, not what's happening. And there's probably even more useful therapeutic narratives you could be imagining as you work. Yeah. And pectoralis minor is one of those, um, one of a few muscles in the body. I always found this to be interesting that um, when we talk about, you know, we talked about this in our stretching episode, um, which I can't remember the number of it, but it was some time ago when we got into talking about what is really happening with, with stretching tissues. But, you know, when we talk about stretching muscles in different parts of the body, pec minor is one that's very difficult to do that at all. It's not surprising to me in this particular study, as you mentioned, that they didn't find any change in the resting length of pec minor because it's actually really hard to pull the coracoid process away from the ribs far enough to really cause a significant length change in that muscle. And to me, I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much chronic hypertonicity in that pec minor is because you just don't have the available range of motion to do that. And, Uh. you know, I would also make note to people to pay attention again here to anatomical things because I see people doing things where they're advocating pectoralis minor stretching all the time where they've got their client's arm, you know, raised up over their head and they're abducting and they're bringing their arm up all around and everything. Is that the one where you stand but remember, on What's that? Is that the one where you stand on their client's elbow? Uh, could be. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> But remembering that the pectoralis minor does not attach to the uh, humerus at all. So, you know, you're not really extending the length of that pectoralis minor, maybe a little bit with scapular movement, but not much. 
you're really going to get a way better stretch on that pec minor by lifting your shoulder up towards your ear and elevating the whole um, shoulder girdle because that's what will pull the coracoid process away from the ribs more significantly. So um, just a a fact to consider there. No, nice. So then we can think about the pec minus being the unshrug muscle. It's the one that pulls Mm -hmm. the shoulders down out of the ears. Yeah. So that might be just a great little pec minor wake up. It's like shrug and unshrug, pull your shoulders down. That's pec minor being both eccentrically and concentrically engaged. And yeah. we do, I'll put again, I'll put in some techniques, hands-on techniques. They do not involve standing on your client's elbow or whatever. That was a joke. Please no hate mail about that. <laughs> I hope everybody understands yeah, that. I know. Yeah. Uh, so, but I will put some gentle techniques for working with pec miter there that in, in our narrative, at least leverage, say, Golgi tendon responses. So they're looking at the neurological control over the resting tone of that pec miter, as opposed to trying to say, uh, physiologically lengthen its connective tissue. We're neurologically relaxing its resting tone, in this, yeah. at least in that point of view. Yeah, good. Well, um, we've hit on a lot of stuff, so we'll put some treatment things in that handout to carry this on to the next little bit here. So anything else you want to wrap up with in summary here about um well yeah no that's good we covered a lot so yeah let's do wrap it up i think for the one point of us going to pull it up for summary is the provocation piece that that's how we know we're on track if we can do a movement or find a place to work or have a client position that gently being the big key provokes some of that sensation bingo we found something relevant and then we work with softening around that not getting more aggressive not trying to ratchet up to the next level of intensity but actually ratchet it back to a level when someone can actually physically, autonomically relax around it. So what's how about you? That was my uh, summary point. You know, provoke, but yeah, wisely, sen- uh, se- uh, sensitively. And the point there is to change the reaction around what you're provoking or give you ideas yeah. to work on. What's, how about you? How would you summarize, Whitney? Yeah. So one of the uh, the things that I just wanted to kind of make sure everybody kind of thinks about is when we're talking about these thoracic outlet syndromes, they are often highly complex and highly variable and lots of different pieces of the puzzle going on. So make sure to really look at this whole big picture, put a lot of emphasis on, you know, history, taking, asking really good, thorough questions with people really delving into this and avoid the temptation to really zero in on these special orthopedic tests that are oftentimes designed that a lot of people say, well, here's how you find out if the person's got thoracic outlet. You do the Adson maneuver or the right abduction test. And um, just, I think we tend to get off track by zeroing in too specifically on some of those kinds of things and, and missing the bigger picture. Like a lot of the movements till that you talked about uh, in the beginning of getting people to go through these various different movements, find out what you know irritates it, what makes it better, that kind of thing. Those are, are real uh, key factors for us. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, looking at that big picture and uh, not getting so detail focused that you lose that big picture. And joint, yeah. I'm just making me think, I'm sorry, I know I've already done a summary, but uh, uh, this makes me think too, the other issues in the body, like classically rotator cuff uh, sensitivity can coincide with thoracic outlet symptoms as you protect the different movements that can set up your scapula to be in a position or a movement pattern where it gets more irritated too. So keep the yeah. picture in mind there as well. Yeah. Great. So um, lots of interesting and fascinating things to dive into with the thoracic outlet syndrome. And um, we'll uh, explore some of these things. Maybe we'll venture down the upper extremity, look at some of these other neural entrapment problems that we talked about in other areas too, as as we uh, 
look at a lot of other potential problems that may also, uh, and this is one of the things we didn't get into, can frequently be misunderstood um, to be or, or you know, misidentified as a thoracic outlet syndrome when it's all kinds of other things. Or as well. hypermobility, that whole question on hypermobility yeah. to talk yeah. about like a rabbit hole. Because there is some evidence that there's like, I think it's like 25%, there's a crossover with people that have some, perhaps, some sort of hypermobility thing going on. That's yeah. always a puzzle right. in manual therapy. How do yeah. work with somebody who's, quote, hyper hypermobilities that are really a thing. Yeah. So to say. Good. Well, we'd like to, uh, yeah, we would like to thank our uh, closing sponsor today, which is ABMP and, um, ABMP is proud to sponsor the thinking practitioner podcast. So all massage therapists and body workers can access free ABMP resources and information on the coronavirus and massage profession at abmp.com forward slash COVID-19, including sample release forms, PPE guides, and a special issue of Massage and Bodywork Magazine, where Till and I are frequent contributors. So for more information, do check out the ABMP podcast, which is a great one to listen to also. That's available at abmp.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you prefer to listen there. So yeah. thanks again to those sponsors. And you can, as uh, we mentioned earlier, stop by our sites for the handout that we've got on this Thoracic Outlet show today, other show notes, transcripts, and extras that are over there as well. So um, we can have links to that. You can find them off of my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that stuff from you as well? Our site is advanced-trainings.com right at the top. I think it says blog or podcast. It's right there. And then if you got questions or things you want to hear us talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media under my, our names. My, at least my name is my name, Till Luca. How about yours, Whitney? Yeah, and mine is also the same. That's Whitney, uh, Whitney Lowe over there on social media. And you can, if you will, follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you happen to listen. If it's a conch shell you pick up off the beach and hear your podcast from there, will be there as well. Nice. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Till, great to be back with you again. Right, and uh, thank, thank you, you all to the listeners for hanging out with us uh, again on this discussion. And we will see you again here in two weeks. See you later. Bye.